Shout for joy to God, all the earth. Sing the glory of his name. Give to him glorious praise. Say to God, how awesome are your deeds. So great is your power that your enemies come cringing to you. All the earth worships you and sings praises to you. They sing praises to your name. Come and see what God has done. He is awesome in his deeds toward the children of man. He turned the sea into dry land. They passed through the river on foot. There did we rejoice in him who rules by his might forever, whose eyes keep watch on the nations. Let not the rebellious exalt themselves. Bless our God, O peoples. Let the sound of his praise be heard, who has kept our soul among the living and has not let our feet slip. For you, O God, have tested us. You have tried us as silver is tried. You brought us into the net. You laid a crushing burden on our backs. You let men ride over our heads. We went through fire and through water, yet you have brought us out to a place of abundance. I will come into your house with burnt offerings. I will perform my vows to you, that which my lips uttered and my mouth promised when I was in trouble. I will offer to you burnt offerings of fattened animals with the smoke of the sacrifice of rams. I will make an offering of bulls and goats. Come in here, all you who fear God, and I will tell what he has done for my soul. I cried to him with my mouth, and high praise was on my tongue. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. But truly God has listened. He has attended to the voice of my prayer. Blessed be God because he has not rejected my prayer or removed his steadfast love from me. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Would you please join with me in prayer? Father, as we sit... Um, in this uh, theater of your glory, um, surrounded by the sounds of cicadas and the beauty of the grass and the trees and the sky, um, everything is declaring to us right now that you are here and that you have made this world and that you are good. And Father, even more clearly, you speak of yourself in your word and we ask for your help now. We ask as we consider it together that it would be more to us than just words on a page, but that as your spirit is present among us, your listening people, that we would hear you speak to us through it, that we would be changed, and that your church would be strengthened, and that you would be glorified. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Shout for joy to God, all the earth. Have you ever wondered about commands like this, um, where we're commanded to praise? I mean, verse 3, say to God, how awesome are your deeds. We are literally being commanded by God to tell God that he is awesome. Has it ever felt strange to you as you've considered that? 
It was actually, uh, if you're familiar at all with C.S. Lewis, when he became a Christian, he actually writes of how this was one of the things that troubled him. He, he writes in his Reflections on the Psalms, the most obvious, sorry, he writes, um, we all despise the man who demands continued assurance of his own virtue, intelligence, or delightfulness. We despise still more the crowd of people around every dictator or millionaire or celebrity who gratify that demand. And to him, these commands that we see right here to praise feels that way. He feels like God is saying, what I most want is to be told that I am good and great. Has it ever bothered you? Well, here in our psalm, we have very clearly this command, but we have more than just a command. I realize, I forgot, if, you have not, if you're waiting for me to say children's church, go ahead and go there. They wisely knew that I made a mistake, but if anyone else needs to make sure that their kid goes to children's church, I'm sorry, I totally forgot. Please join that line over there and, and go to children's church. Sorry about that. But anyway, let me, let me continue back. So our psalm, the psalm that we have here, not only does it tell us why, I mean, that, that we should praise, it not only commands us of that, but it also tells us why. And what we're told, if we just spend time in this passage, it, there really are two parts. If you don't have the Psalms open, the passage open right now, I invite you to look at it because we'll be kind of like just like working through verse by verse. And there are really two stanzas to it. Verses one through eight really kind of are objective and they're saying, this is true, that God is great. And then verses 9 to the very end are more personal, speaking of how God is faithful. And, and what we see, if we pay attention to what the psalmist is telling us, is the reason we are to praise is not, not because God needs it, but because we need it, but because it is delightful. So, so first, let's, let's begin with this first stanza where there is this emphasis on just that this is true, that this is real. C.S. Lewis, when he was writing about this question that he asked, um, he, he spoke of how he realized that, that part of the reason that we praise things is just because it's an acknowledgement of what is true. And, and we, we've had that probably experience before. Have you ever been talking with someone about a movie that you really love, and they start going, eh, and you're like, you don't like that movie? You've got to like that movie. It is one of the greatest movies of all time. There is something about just truth that you feel the need to be acknowledged, and if someone else isn't acknowledging it, then they are just blind. They're not, they're not experiencing something that's good. C.S. Lewis says that similarly. He says, when it comes to kind of recognizing who God is, Praise is just simply being awake, he says, to have entered the real world. To not appreciate him is to have lost the greatest experience. The incomplete and crippled lives of those who are tone deaf or who have never been in love or never enjoyed the feel of the morning air on their cheeks are faint images of being in that kind of lack of awakeness. He's saying there's something about praise where it's just the act of embracing reality. And, and to not do so is to somehow miss out on what is true. And, and the psalmist says something similar, but what he says is actually fairly controversial. Notice at the very beginning when he says, shout for joy to God, he doesn't just stop there. He says, shout for joy to God, all the earth 
Verse 4, all the earth is to worship you. Verse 8, bless our God, O peoples. Now, why is that controversial? Well, in that time, there was generally the understanding that the God you worship was the God of your nation. If you lived in Babylon, you, you would worship the Babylonian God Marduk. If you were a Syrian, it would be Asher. If we were the Philistines, it would be Baal. This is the way that you show your homage to your nation. This is the way you show your faithfulness to your family. You, you worship this God because this is the God of your people. And, and the psalm here says, no, it, Whatever, whatever your background is, shout for joy to God, the God of Israel, all the earth. Because there is this God, and he's the one who deserves to be praised. It's not just controversial in that time. We, we see and feel something similar, right? If we just think about right now, how many of us have friends that we admire, that we deeply respect from other cultures? Maybe we know some from the Middle East who are Muslim, or we know some from India and some of them are Hindi, or, or you fill in the blank. And for us to say, you're wrong, just feels so, so intolerant. Or we could take it even further because one of the things that makes this so challenging and controversial to us right now is we are in a time where personal experience just seems to matter to everything. It's at the very heart of stuff. So if there is someone that we know who says, you know, I have come to realize who God is. I've had this experience and, and I realize he's just this force of love that surrounds us. And the moment that I came to see this and embrace this, my life has just been so much better. I am now free of kind of guilt. I have joy. It seems almost impossible for us to say, I'm sorry, but you're wrong. And yet that's exactly what the psalmist says. The psalmist says, no, no. We are to acknowledge the greatness of God, the God of, of Israel, and his reason for this is actually a really simple one. It's because he is saying this is the God who is objectively true, who is objectively real. In other areas of life, we understand this idea of there being an objective reality that stands outside of us. So if two people were skydiving, they jump out of the airplane, and both to their horror, they realize they have no parachute. And they, they're kind of talking to each other as they're plummeting down. And one says, oh no, we are going to die. And the other one says, you know, I'm actually feeling pretty good about this. If we just believe and believe and believe hard enough, I think we can fly. Now, those two people, one of them is almost certainly going to have a happier trip. But both of them will meet the same objective reality. And it doesn't matter what their opinions were. We understand that. That's how objective reality works. And, and it's the same when it comes to God. If, if the God of the Bible is real, then whatever someone thinks about him or is, 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 is ultimately not going to make any difference to the way reality is. And this is something that actually is it's really important to understand and get to the bottom of. There are some truths, some facts that I'm really okay not knowing. So if, if someone came to me and said, hey, I'm an historian and I've looked and it actually is not the case that in 1492 Columbus sailed the ocean blue. Sure. I am totally fine not knowing whether that was exactly, it doesn't affect me at all. But when we're talking about who 
God is. I mean, if we take the Bible seriously at all, it says that this God is at the very center of the universe. Then this is not a reality that we can afford to just kind of leave in this, I don't know, kind of thing. This is, this is everything. I mean, what's spoken of here is it says how awesome, literally how frighteningly great. It's, it's terrifying. It says, so great is your power, in verse 3, that enemies come cringing to you, which, which is saying that there is no place for neutrality here. Either we with praise and with acknowledgement recognize the greatness of God, or we refuse to and we are enemies, but either way, it will, what we know of God and what we think of him will make all the difference in the world. This is not one of those facts that we can just keep putting off. It is everything. And that's why, as this psalmist is writing, they don't just, he doesn't just assert these truths. Notice he actually invites us to investigate, which seems to be the most rational thing to do. If there's an object of truth and it's all defining, we should try to get to the bottom of it. And so what does he say? Come and see, in verse 66. Sorry, verse 5 of chapter 66. Come and see. Let me give you evidence of what God has done. Come and see, he is awesome in his deeds towards the children of man. Specifically, here's an example to show you what I mean. He turned the sea into dry land, and they passed through the river on foot. So if you were in Hinsdale uh, a few weeks ago, you experienced for about an hour a pretty intense rainfall. It wasn't unusually intense. I mean, it was higher than normal, but we had rainfall greater than that before. But what was unusual if you lived, say, on our street, was the fact that all of the drainage system underneath the roads was meant to go to a creek and overflow into that, but that overflow was blocked by construction, which meant all of this hill, all of the water under the street, all of the water above it, all was coming down and getting stuck, and mayhem broke loose. I mean, it was amazing, and I'm not going to be exaggerating. This is all stuff that happened. There was, right in the corner of, like, County Line and Walnut, there was an ongoing eight-foot geyser of hundreds of gallons of water just streaming up. There's another place along the street where there's this metal grate, about 100 pounds, that just goes thrown off as the water came flooding through it. The, the road buckled. That's why we can't get through that interchange right now. It was an enormous amount of force, and that was, for me, just a taste of just how powerful water can be. I mean, it's an enormous force, right? I mean, we, we are in this technological age where we feel strong about ourselves in many ways, and yet we really don't know what to do about water. Think about the flooding of New Orleans a number of years ago, or even right now. I was just seeing the news that in Western Europe right now there's all sorts of flooding and, and people dying and lots of stuff being destroyed. Or I think of 2004, the tragedy, there was a, a big earthquake in the middle of the ocean and miles upon miles upon miles of water came crashing along the shores throughout the globe and 230,000 people died and billions and billions and billions of stuff was destroyed by water. Because water is this just enormous, untamable force. And so just imagine when it's talking about this moment of God dividing the Red Sea. I've never been to the Red Sea, probably most of you haven't. So the closest I can imagine is if I was just, we, most of us probably have stood on the shore of Lake Michigan. So just in your mind, imagine your feet 
on the sand, the water in front of you, maybe way in the distance you see a sailboat, and imagine that water just slowly parting, not just in front of you, but for miles upon miles, and as the ground gets deeper, the water gets higher, and at some points, the water on either side is skyscraper high, and the sound is deafening. If I were in that situation with Israel, the only reason I would be willing to walk through this with walls of water almost a mile high, it feels like, on either side is because there are terrifying army chasing me. Otherwise, there is no way I would walk through that. And as I walked through that, I would be filled with fear. How awesome Is it any wonder that, you know, like again and again in the Psalms and throughout the Old Testament, this keeps on being brought up because anyone in Israel who would have walked through the water like that would have told their children and their grandchildren. Everyone was a witness to something that was unthinkably great. And as they are remembering this, they would say, do you understand what that means about our God? Do you understand just how great he is? Now, if we were... If we were writing this, come and see what God has done. He turned the sea into dry land, and then we would add, and he turns death into life. I've read about people in Silicon Valley who keep on trying to come up with ways to be able to make life eternal, like trans- putting our bodies into computers or whatever. And we all kind of like just like roll our eyes at it because there is just this kind of undeniable fact that 10 out of 10 people die, and we know that. It's this unstoppable force. And even more than that, what we know, even as it feels mysterious, is once someone dies, there is no bringing them back. It is an unstoppable force, except with Jesus. That that with Jesus' death, it's not just that God kept Jesus from dying, prolonging his life a little bit more. It's that God crushed Jesus death in Jesus, that God divided the waters of death and brought Jesus through it into life that doesn't just last for a little while, but forever. He destroyed death for Jesus and all those who follow him. And if we just think about how terrifying death is to say that God has that much power, that is awesome. And here's the point in this. He's saying, come and see. Either these things happened or they didn't. Either God divided the waters and people passed through it or it didn't happen. Either God raised Jesus from the dead or he didn't. And there are so many witnesses, it is foolish for us just to discount it because it seems unlikely. And if these things happened, then what does it say? That there is a God who is great, who is terrifyingly great, No matter how we might feel in the moment, it's not an opinion, it's not a story, it's not just a feeling that we have to make ourselves feel better. There is a God who is real, who as verse 7 says, who rules by his might forever, whose eyes keep watch on the nations. And there are only two possibilities. Either we can choose to kind of keep that at arm's length and in doing so we are being what exactly it says not to. Let not the rebellious exalt themselves. We are rebelling against the one true, awesome, terrifying, great God. Or we can embrace this reality and say what is true. 
and shout for joy of the greatness of the God who is at the center of all things. That is one of the reasons why we praise because it is better to walk into reality than to hide from it. But there is a a second reason that our psalm gives us. It's not just that we acknowledge the greatness of God because it's true, but we celebrate the greatness of God because it is good, because it is joyful. Beginning in verse 9, he moves from the objective, this is the way things are, that everyone should be able to see the greatness of God, to the personal, where he speaks now not just of God's greatness, but of how he has experienced God. And he speaks in his testimony of how God is faithful. Notice the, the, the difference between the two. In verse Five, it says, come and see what God has done. Let me tell you the objective truth about God. But notice in verse 16, he speaks differently. Come and listen, all you who fear God, and I will tell you what he has done for me. And what he has done for me is shown his loving faithfulness to me. And that, that story is the story he begins to tell in, in verse 9. He speaks of God who has kept our soul among the living and has not let our feet slip. He says, my experience, I've come to realize that, that every step along the way, God is with me. He is caring for me. He is protecting me. But the way he illustrates this story is perhaps not the way he would expect. Notice what he says next after he, he says that about God. For you, O God, have tested us. Literally, you have smelted us as silver is smelted. To purify silver of its iron oxide, it needs to be heated to about 1,700 degrees Fahrenheit, which I think is pretty hot. And he's saying, that's what I experienced. You have, you, you melted us, God, with suffering. And, and he goes on very explicitly to describe just how things were. Verse 11, you have brought us into the net. We were trapped and you're the one who allowed it to happen. You laid a crushing burden on our backs. We were utterly exhausted. You let men ride over our heads. We were humiliated and powerless. We went through fire and through water. God, you brought us through intense and almost unendurable suffering. Do you, do you know what the psalmist is talking about when, when he's describing this? What it feels like to have like this two-ton weight upon your back and just to feel like there's no way you can keep standing. Or to feel like you are drowning in problems and responsibilities and you cannot keep your head above water. That's what he is describing. But the story continues, yet you have brought us out. Yes, Lord, you brought us through these things, but you brought us out. You brought us out to a place of abundance, of, of beauty, of plenty. That is my story. Now, there are two things that are interesting to me about this personal testimony that he is telling to show us something about God. The first 
is that he doesn't talk about the highlight reel of all the great moments. He's not talking about the plenty of the land or the beauty of a child being born or prosperity. Those are things that can celebrate God's goodness. But no, what he goes to is the single worst moment of his life to speak of God. And secondly, and this is what we would notice if we just kind of continue and look at the following verses, when he speaks of God's goodness, he doesn't zero in on this abundance. He doesn't talk about all the good things that have happened to him. No, the thing that he keeps on returning to is the fact that God heard his prayer. So, verse 16 again. Come here, all you who fear God, and I will tell you what he has done for my soul. I cried to him with my mouth. And what happens? It says, I cried to him, but 19, truly, God has listened. He has attended to the voice of my prayer. And notice how he concludes when he's inviting everyone to praise, blessed be God, because he has not rejected my prayer. That, that is the heart of his story. And, and here's the reason that he is telling the story in this way. When you and I experience deep suffering, it is in those moments than more than almost any other time that God gets our attention. When, when we are being brought to the end of ourselves where we feel utterly incapable of going forward, where we feel helpless and in agony, that is when the question of who God is and what he's like becomes way more than a philosophical question. It becomes everything. And as we cry out and as we look to God, if we experience what has been experienced here, here's what he experienced. He experienced God answering and God bringing him through to the other side. And through this process, God's love and faithfulness became more than just words for him. It was something he experienced personally so that it's not just that God hears prayer, it's that God heard him, that God answered him, that God loves and is faithful to him. He is saying in this moment he was melted, but in his being melted, he was transformed to now know God and his love more deeply and to be filled with joy. Some of you, I realize right now, are probably in the very middle of what's being described here. You are feeling this drowning, this burden, this confusion of how a God who loves you could possibly allow this to happen. And, and I think what the psalmist would say is keep crying out to God because your story isn't yet over. Every, every good tale that's told, every story that ends happily, there is a point, oftentimes around three-fourths of the way through the story, where it looks like it's a tragedy. But beyond the suffering, at the end, there is always joy. And that is the story that is told for every single person who is in Jesus because God has already given the spoiler. He's already shown what happens at the end. Jesus is the one who goes before us and for him and for all who follow him, beyond death is life. Beyond suffering is abundance. Beyond weeping is joy. And the process is what he uses to allow us to experience personally that we have a God who loves us and is faithful to us. 
That is what the psalmist is saying. He's saying, even if you don't experience it right now, hear my testimony. Let me tell you my story. I cried out in the midst of agony and God answered me. And we don't just need to hear what the psalmist says. One of my privileges is I get to hear many of your stories and so many of you have told me something similar about a time where you went through something almost unendurable. Maybe it was the sudden loss of a job that you were so relying upon or it was going through some period of great sickness or or the loss of someone incredibly close to you. And, and in that agony as you just look to God in a way that is impossible to explain unless you've experienced it, you came to taste the sweetness of God's goodness and God's love in a way that you never had before. And yes, God shows his kindness through all the good things we happen, but there's something about being brought through and experiencing God's answering to prayer that causes us to know this is who our God is. He is faithful. And to all of us, I want, us to a- I want to ask you a simple question. How many times do we need to hear that kind of story before we believe it? Because I know I've heard it again and again, and probably some of you have as well. Or maybe asking things even more personally, how often does it have to happen to you before you begin to believe it? Because personally, Again and again, I have seen God bring me through things, and yet the next time I experience something hard, I seem to forget it. And I understand why. I understand why we keep having a hard time believing it, because what we're talking about is so ridiculously, wonderfully, unthinkably amazing if we just step back and think. We have just talked about the God who is terrifyingly great, who is objectively real, who's at the center of the universe, and what we're saying is he has pledged himself to you and to me. He has promised himself to all who place their faith in Jesus. I am yours, he says. I will bring you through every single thing. Every tear we weep, he sees. Every prayer we cry out, he hears. And every moment he is answering us in love, promising us that we will be brought into a place of abundance. Is there anything, anything more amazing than that? It's one of those things that you just want to sit in because if we could allow it to permeate us, it would change us and give us joy. And that is why we praise. Because praising is the way that we bring this joy to culmination and experience the reality of it in our daily lives. And let me return to C.S. Lewis one more time because this is where he kind of came to the final answer of this question that was troubling him. He says, The most obvious fact about praise, whether of God or anything, had strangely escaped me. I had never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise, unless shyness or the fear of boring others is deliberately brought in to check it. The world rings with praise. Lovers praising their mistresses. Readers, their favorite poets. Walkers praising the countryside. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses, it completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. 
It is not out of complimenting each other that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete until it is expressed. In commanding us to glorify him, God is inviting us to enjoy him. This is why we are commanded to praise, not because God needs it, but because we do. Because God is real, and it is always better to step into and embrace reality. But more than that, because God is good. And the way that we celebrate that goodness and delight in it is through praise. When God commands us to glorify him, he is commanding us to enjoy him. And so I invite us even now to respond in prayer. Let's take a moment where our hearts have been slow to praise God, just to acknowledge that before him in confession, and then to use what happens next as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, as we sing, as a chance to just relish the goodness of our God. So let's take a moment in silent prayer, and then I will lead us in prayer in a moment's time.